Well, let me invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis 14, you'll find that on page 10. If you want to use the Pew Bible in front of you, I'd be happy for you to do that. In fact, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you just take that Bible and that rack in front of you home, and that could be your very own. So we'd love for you to be able to do that. And uh, we are uh, going to look at a very interesting passage this morning as we continue our study of the life of Abram. If you're here this morning, you, you happen not to be a Christian or are not used to reading the Bible, uh, you, you'll, you might think, well, this is, seems like a very strange passage. Um, and uh, it is. And uh, so just to kind of prepare you even before we get into it, um, it's, um, it's a, a bit cumbersome to begin, uh, but it picks up towards the end. And of course, we trust it all to be the Word of God, and it will be profitable for us this morning, won't it? And so here we are in Genesis 14, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Catalomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Sinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketolomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketolomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, and Zuzim and Ham, and Emim in Shava Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came into En Mishfat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Melchites and also the Amorites, who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim. With Ketolomer, the king of Elam, Tidal, the king of Goim, Amraphel, the king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he had brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Ketolomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. 
And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. Our Father, we're thankful for your word this morning. We pray that you would help us and guide us through it. I trust we have much to learn here, much even of this very ancient record of war. There is much for us um, to learn and to do and to follow. And so we ask that you would even help us not only to understand these truths, but that you would apply it to our very lives so that we might leave here more in love with Jesus and following him more intimately. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. It was in May of 2017 when President Trump and President Macron, uh, the president of France, met, and they greeted each other with a handshake that seemed to never end. In fact, one of them, in the middle of the handshake, let go, while the other remained gripped, still shaking. And then, eventually, the the, the one who let go re-gripped, and then they started this push-and-pull kind of deal with the handshake. And when it was finally over, you could literally see the finger marks on each other's hands. They had gripped so tightly. In fact, one reporter says they shook hands for an extended period of time as Trump and Macron gripped the other's hand with considerable intensity, their knuckles turning white, their jaws clenching, and their faces tightening. Now, I don't lead a nation, so I don't know how these things typically go. But it seems to me that when great men and powerful men often meet, some type of competition soon follows, right? It, 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 evidently, uh, there is even a competition so you could grab each other's hand longer. It's almost, if you will excuse me, like middle school boys to me, or squeeze it tighter. Well, today it's interesting. We come to this passage and we have a meeting of two great men, don't we? Uh, one is a conquering warrior, the other a king, and rather than crushing handshakes, there's humble bowing. Rather than clenching jaws, there's loving blessing. Rather than dominating, there's submission. And in this interaction, what I want you to see is is both these men actually wonderfully prefigure our Lord. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, you need to have an eye for the Lord himself. He he explains that all the Bible is written about him. It all testifies to him. J.C. Ryle, I think, is right, who wrote long ago, we should always read the Old Testament with a desire to find something in it about Jesus Christ. We study the Bible with little profit, he said, if we can see nothing but Moses and David and Samuel and the prophets. Let us search the books of the Old Testament more closely. It was said by him whose words can never pass away, these are the scriptures that testify about me. Now, I I remind you of this every six months, and so it's been six months, and so here we go. I just want to remind you once again that when you come to the Bible and you read the Bible, you are not to come with the first question in your mind, how am I supposed to live in light of this passage? That is not the question you come with. 
The Bible is not a book primarily written to tell you what to do. We, we, you know, some people say, I'm going to open the Bible, I'm going to find out how to treat my wife, I'm going to find out how to manage my finances, I'm going to find out how to overcome temptations and have boldness and all the rest. Of course, the Bible gives us principles, I'm not denying that, but it's not what the Bible's primarily for. Instead, when you open the Bible, you, you, you come and the question that, that dominates your mind is, what does this tell me about my God? what he has done, what he is doing, what he will doing. We read to see what he has done. And as we discover what God has done, you will find yourself being drawn closer to him and even empowered by him to actually obey him. And so, for instance, let's say you're reading the story of David and Goliath. And there's, of course, uh, Israel surrounded by a powerful enemy. Everyone's terrified, except this little boy named David. Right? He trusts the Lord. He goes out with, uh, with, with very unorthodox battle strategy, and he, he wins the victory. And then all of Israel f- charges onto the battlefield and takes the spoils of war. Now, perhaps you've heard that passage preached and say, well, maybe in the sermon title, something like facing the giants in your life. And you're told you need to be like David. Who, you know, when giants come against you and you have these obstacles, you need to trust the Lord just like David did. And you need to go out and charge the battle and know that God is going to give you victory. Well, what if the story of David and Goliath, which I believe to be a true account, I'm not suggesting otherwise. But what if the story of David and Goliath is not so much about you, but it's about Jesus. That, that, that Jesus happens to be the hero. The, uh, the boy, the unlikely boy born in Bethlehem who happens then to become king. And you, rather than being David, are more like the terrified soldier who could do absolutely nothing to defeat the enemy that surrounds you, unable to defend yourself until a true David defeats the undefeatable enemy in the most unlikely way. And then what do you do? You charge into the field and you reap the benefits of his victory. You see, the Bible points us to Christ. And you could do this story after story after story. And we see his victory, we become so grateful for what he's done, that we actually find this power to obey him, right? And this is called gospel-centered living, right? if, If all you do is read the Bible and see law, demands, obligations, commands, well, it's going to be a burden upon you. But if you come to the Bible and you let the Bible help you delight in God, who has completed all of God's commands on your behalf in Jesus, you'll find yourself more and more joyful in your obedience to the one whom you love. And so let me suggest to you that you should read the Bible, the Old Testament in particular, looking for Jesus. Where can I find Jesus? And by the way, he's everywhere. For instance, you read the book of Genesis, as we are doing even today. Jesus, the light that shines in the darkness, points us to Jesus. He is the better Adam, who resisted temptation and imputes to us not sin, but righteousness. He is the woman's seed, who, has, who was wounded by the serpent, but would crush his head. He's the better Abel, though slain, innocently slain by his brothers. His blood does not call out for acquittal, 
but, excuse me, condemnation, but calls out for acquittal. He's the true of life, by whose fruit we shall live forever. He's Noah's ark, through which once we enter into him, we shall pass through the wrath of God. He's the better Abraham, who obeyed God to go to a foreign land in order to bless the nations. He's uh, Isaac, the son of promise, who carries the wood of his own sacrifice. He's the goat caught in the thicket, who dies in Isaac's place. He's Jacob's ladder, by which we ascend into the very presence of God, and on and on and on. It all points us to Jesus. And you get done with Genesis, you go to Exodus, and you find out, well, he's the Passover lamb by whose shed blood we're delivered from God's justice. He's the better Moses who defeats our enemies and liberates the slaves. He, he leads us out through judgment in order that we might worship God. He's the rock that was struck that gives the water of life. He's the manna from heaven. He's the Sabbath rest. He's the mercy seat by which we find forgiveness. He's the, his body is the veil that separates us from God's presence through which we pass through his body in order to draw near to God. On every page in the Old Testament, it seems to me that his coming is prophesied, his life is prefigured, his sufferings are personified, his resurrection is promised, and his return is a pledge to us. And so let me tell you once again, God wrote a book, and it's not about you. It's about Jesus. And we read the book looking for Jesus. Now, I'm almost done. We'll get to the text. But if I can, uh, can I give you a 90-second seminary course, okay? So I don't know if you're not interested. Put some headphones on or whatever you need to do to get through this. But the Bible in the Old Testament... He's going to speak of God, of Jesus, in three ways. Three ways. Number one, he's going to speak of Jesus through prophecy. 25% of the Old Testament is prophecy. Right? Psalm 22, Daniel 7, Isaiah 9, and on and on. So it's just going to be very direct. This is what he's going to do. This is how he's going to do it, so forth. Number two, theophany. Theophany. So God will actually appear. He'll actually come. So we, we, we'll see in, in Genesis 18 that God has a meal with Abraham, right? Or he'll meet with Moses in a burning bush. Or there'll be a fourth man in the fire, right, in the book of Daniel. Those are called theophanies, the appearances of God. So you have prophecy, you have theophany, and then thirdly, you have typology. Typology, right? That there are, are types, little things in the Old Testament that are little pictures of Jesus, Okay? Now, just to get further into the weeds, here we go. We're almost done. There are four types of typology that you will find. Okay? You can find offices in the Bible. King, priest, judge, prophet. Those are all pointing us to Jesus. Okay? Those offices. So you can also have things that point us to Jesus. The manna, the ark, the temple, the sacrifices. Those all point us to Jesus. They're all teaching us about Jesus. You have offices, things, and you have people. Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Boaz, David, Esther, Nehemiah, Samson, right? They are all pointing us to Jesus. Offices, things, persons, and my favorite are events. So you have events, like the one we're studying today. Historical, real, actually happened events, and yet God uses them to point us to Jesus. For instance, take the life of Joseph, a man who is sold into slavery, into death, and somehow emerges out on the other side. Wow, wow. To do what? To save God's people. Okay? 
Uh, or you, you have Moses, who provides redemption through the blood of the Passover lamb. Or you have Joshua, who's leading the people of God into the promised land, which is a picture of heaven, through the waters, of course, which is a picture of death. You have Samson sacrificing himself in order to defeat his enemies and liberate God's people. You have Esther risking her life to identify herself as one of God's people in order to save them. You have Jonah in the belly of the whale three days, only to emerge to preach God's reign to a pagan nations. And so God is constantly weaving pictures of the saving work of Jesus in historical events. In other words, things just don't happen in God's world. God is using them. And so we come to Genesis 14, okay? Now, uh, tune back in if you, you've tuned out for a moment. And we, we find, we're following the life of Abram. Remember, God created this world, beautiful, wonderful. Man chose to, to sin, to rebel against God, led us into chaos And then God responds to the chaos caused by sin by calling Abram out and saying, Abram, through you, I will fix the world. And so we're following this man. And today he goes to war. This is in all human literature. Genesis 14 is one of the oldest accounts of warfare that we have. And we see Abram going to war. We actually see him winning the war. And then it's only after he wins the war that the real battle begins. As we'll see in a moment, Abraham pictures to us this victorious general, and he meets there the general, meets two kings, and we see, oh, all these armies, all this war was really a backdrop for this test of faith, right? We see Abram's faith tested, but then in in it, as we just established, we see a picture of the true man of faith. So we're going to have eyes for Jesus this morning in three scenes. Number one, great war. Number two, a great victory. Number three, a great man. So consider scene number one. There is a great war, as we see in verse one. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Ketalormer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Sinab, Shinab, king of Adma. Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, and all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. I, I read this, it sounds like the Lord of the Rings to me. I'm looking for Bilbo and Gandalf and all the rest. I can't find them. Um, but here we got this war. We got five kings fighting four. Okay, the, these are city states. These don't think like France and, you know, fighting, you know, Austria. These are, these are like, these kings are like mayors. We might call them warlords today. They kind of govern just a little regional area, and, uh, and, and they form alliances, just like we form alliances. Nations align with other nations to position themselves against other alliances. So you got four kings out by the Euphrates, out where Babylon would be established, led by this guy named Ketolomer, okay? And then you got these five kings in the Jordan Valley, and they're going to war. Now, why are they going to war? Well, pretty much for the same reason that many, many wars are fought for money. This is all about money, as you see in verse 4. Twelve years they had served Ketolomer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. So in 12 years, these these four uh, eastern cities, 12 years ago, they conquered the five Jordanian cities. And now they require tribute. But year 13, the five in the Jordan, they, they joined together. And say, we're no longer paying you for the money. Well, these eastern four cities, they like the money. So they get their army together, and they march off to battle. And along the way, they come conquer some other people that we've never heard of. 
as you see there in verse 5. In the 14th year, Keralomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtoreth, Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and Emin in Shava, Kiriathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came into En Mishphat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. The trick is, by the way, just to read the name quickly and confidently, and no one will know that you don't know how to pronounce it. So these four guys, right, their strategies, they come down through the south, and they come up through the Sinai wilderness up into the Jordan Valley. And they're defeating everybody. I don't know if this is helpful at all, but here we go. They're defeating everyone on the way, and they've cut off their, their retreat, and there are now these five the, of the Jordan are fighting against these four conquering nations, and, um, and they, they go to battle there in verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, in case you forgot the names, here we go, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. They joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Ketelomer, the king of Elam, Tidal, the king of Goim, Amraphel, the king of Shinar, and Arioch, the king of Elisar, four kings against five. So there they are. Finally, we get to the battle and these five Jordanian cities are easily conquered by these four coming from the Euphrates, as you see in verse 10. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So there's tar pits native to the Dead Sea. Josephus, who was a historian around Jesus' time, calls it the asphalt sea. Okay, the, the tar pits still, still ooze out in the southern sections. Now, the Jordan cities, they know about the tar pits. That's where they live, okay? And, and you think, okay, they're fighting on their home turf, but they're the ones who actually fall into the tar pits. Now, I'm not a, a soldier at all. I don't know anything about military training, but I would think Battle 101 would be stay out of the tar pits. Um, but, but evidently, they didn't get that class, and so that you know, a terrible way to die, I trust. And, and some, some are being uh, swallowed up in these, these terrible situations. Others are fleeing to the hills. You say, what does this have to do with Abram? Well, remember, Abram had that boneheaded nephew named Lot, right? We call him Lot because he's a lot of trouble. I mean, just all the time, there's trouble uh, throughout his life. And Lot chose where? To live where? Remember? Last week, Sodom. Well, Sodom's just been defeated, including Lot. You see that in verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So Lot and all he has is carted off. Just kind of imagine what that would be like. I mean, the terror of such events. Could you, could you imagine? You know, here you are in Percival or Hamilton or Round Hill, wherever you live in. An army coming in, and they're going house to house. And they're running through their house, and they're taking everything you've got, and you, and your family, and off you go. Right? Off you go. Everything. Right? Maybe your daughters now, as we know in war, taken by some Hittite soldier. And you, you're unable to protect. You're unable to defend. And everything you've lived for in a moment is gone. And everything you hoped about your life and all the dreams in which you had are just blown away. And now you're bound and you're marching to, to who knows where. 
Or some of you, some of you actually know the misery of war, don't you? I'm thankful that most of us don't. I'm thankful we live in a time and a place where war is not a constant threat for us. We ought to praise God for that. Yet, throughout this world, there always seems to be some war being waged, doesn't there? Often wars in which our nation's involved. Seems like we, as, as, as Americans, are often either sending out troops or trying to figure out how to bring them home once we sent them out. And we're not alone. Many nations are involved in this. And it seems to, despite our efforts and despite all the institutions and all the, the, the alliances and despite all the uh, unimaginable tragedies of past wars, we have somehow failed to get rid of war. We're still fighting war. Why? I mean, it started 4,500 years ago, right? I'm sure before then, continues today. Why? Well, may I suggest to you that, our, that the reason for international warfare is because of internal warfare. That there is, if you will, a war going on in our hearts to which we are unable to bring peace. There is a wickedness within each of us from which we must be rescued. And until we're rescued, that war spills out. And it spills out into families, neighborhoods, schools, churches even. Some of you have experienced that, haven't you? And nations. And so may I humbly suggest the solution to war is not a political strategy, though they, they may be helpful. It's not an international institution up in New York. The only solution to international war is an internal transformation that will be brought about by one the Bible identifies as the Prince of Peace. We need a rescuer to come liberate us from our own bondage to sin, which is, I think, what we get a picture of in scene number two, the great victory. The great victory. You see that those, those who have been those who have not been captured or killed have fled to the hills. We saw that there in verse 12, I think it was. One of them makes it, perhaps in the middle of the night, stumbling into Abram's camp about 20 miles away with news of, of the defeat and Lot's capture. You see that in verse 13, don't you? Then one who had escaped and came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and of Anar. Uh, these were the allies of Abram. We'll return to those guys in a moment. But this guy comes and he says, listen, uh, you need to know, Abram, your nephew has been taken captive. And he's being marched off with his family and everything he has. And, of course, Abram could, could be thinking, right? Could imagine, well, <laughs> you know, the young man made his bed. Right, let him lie in it. All right, he chose Sodom. I gave him a choice. He, he said, I want to go live there. He's getting what he deserves. Right. You ever say things like that? You ever believe things like that? Abram didn't, as you see in verse 14. When Abram heard that, the kins, that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, bored in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So Abram, Abram's going to risk everything. He's going to risk life and live to go rescue nephew. And out come the bows and the swords, and the spears are thrust into the sky, and he, he mounts his horse and rides to war as far as Dan, over 100 miles away. Now, we know Abram's an old man. He's 80 years old or even more. And most 80-year-olds I know won't even mount a ladder, let alone a war horse. Right? 
And yeah, right? And, and, and off he goes. He, uh, he's charging into battle. I mean, what incredible courage this must have taken. And by the way, hand-to-hand battle. And, and it's just him and his guys against four undefeated kings. That was incredible courage we see here. In fact, Napoleon once referred to Marshal Ney as a man of unbelievable bravery. Yet, yet Ney's knees trembled so badly one morning before battle that he had trouble getting on his horse. Once in the saddle, he shouted, Shake away, knees. You would shake worse than that if you knew where I'm going to take you. I trust Abram must have, his men must have known that fear. And yet, what do we hear? The war cries. And we see a cloud of dust as valiant men charge off to battle. And I may say, rightly so. Rightly so. There are times when war is not only justified, I believe it's morally required. Not every war should be fought. And war often does not make things better. But there are terrible, violent people and nations in this world. They destroy lives without a second thought. They trample people. They oppress people. And they need to be stopped. And so, you know, here, here, here they go. You know, I mean, these armies, what, they, how, many, how many slaves do they now have? Hundreds? Thousands? Carted off as slaves? Women taken as spoils of war? Abram's not a violent man, but he knows he's their only hope. And it's interesting to me that he seems to have prepared for this because he has 318 men in his house who are trained for combat. And so off they go to fight, as you see in verse 15. And he divided his force against them by night, he, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. So he, he divides his forces, he attacks at night, it's surprising, it's confusing. They're not expecting an attack. They think they've defeated everyone. Well, not everyone, because the new guy in town, Abram, they didn't even know about. And as they perhaps enjoy their wicked revelry around the campfire, as soldiers might have done, down in the middle of the night descends Abram with his troops divided. And you can hear the clash of steel and the screams of the dying pierce the night. The enemies are routed, and they're pursued, the Bible tells us, as far north of Damascus, another hundred miles. Where does he get such courage? I mean, how can this man do this? Where does he get such faith? Well, I wonder if it's because God has promised him, Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make you into a father. And I'm going to take care of you. And he knows when he takes things into his own hands and doesn't trust God, they don't go so well, as we saw last week. And so in he goes. And by the way, this man who trusts God is using military strategy. You see that, right? It's not he doesn't say, okay, God's going to protect me, and so I'm going to march right up to him and say, hello, I'm here to fight you, okay? And it's not, Abram has a plan. He says, I trust the Lord, and we sneak attack, okay? Uh, in other words, you can trust the Lord, but you need a plan, okay? He doesn't no, trust the Lord and no plan. You need a plan for your life. You need a plan for your family. You need a plan uh, for your marriage, right? No, you say, no, I just trust the Lord. No, 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 no. You, yeah, you trust the Lord, of course, but God works through strategy and insight and plans. And so Abram comes, and he uh, does this incredible work, as you see in verse 16. Then he brought back all the possessions and brought back his kinsmen, Lot with his possessions, note that phrase there, and the women, right? You understand why that's there. You understand the great noble work in which this man has done, and 
the people to finish verse 16. He brings back the freed captives. And in this does not Abram point us to Jesus. You see that? You know who you are in the story? You're not Abram. You're Lot. You, you have been taken captive by an enemy with no hope. And in comes our Lord. Right? He doesn't leave us in captivity, but he rescues us, the Bible says, from the domain of darkness. I love, love what Spurgeon said long ago. What a splendid type is Abram of our Lord Jesus Christ. For our Lord Jesus Christ, in the abundance of his love, had taken us to be his brothers. But we, through our sin, had moved into the land of Sodom. And Jesus Christ dwelt alone in his safety and his happiness, enjoying the presence of God, the host of our enemies, with terrible force and cruel fury, carried us away captives into the land of forgetfulness and captivity forever. Christ, who had lost nothing by this, nevertheless pursued our haughty foes. He overtook them. He smote them. He took their spoils and returned, leading captivity captive. Spurgeon concludes saying, Methinks, as I see Abram returning from the slaughter of the four kings, I see in him a picture of a greater Abram, the Lord Jesus. And that picture is going to be fully apparent when the Lord Jesus returns, as he has promised, to conquer those who would refuse his mercy by the word of his mouth and give us full and complete liberty from all the bondages in our life. Now, you, my friends, who have been rescued by the Lord, what do you do? Well, now that you have received this work, you find this power and strength. Well, I want to be like the one who has come and rescued me. I want to be like this greater Abram. I want to go and now liberate the captives, just as I was liberated. So my question for you, Christian, is are you courageous for the Lord? When is the last time you were scared for Jesus? When is the last time you did anything for Jesus that called for valor and courage? In your office, in your neighborhood, in the classroom? My friends, we ought to think on what Jesus has risked for us and find courage and boldness in light of that. You know, the Bible says in Galatians 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him, rescue him. You know anyone who needs rescue? A friend, co-worker, a neighbor? Have you shared with them what Jesus would do for them? You say, I'm scared. I know. So go be scared for Jesus. Trust the Lord and take a step in boldness. How great would it be if God gave this, this little church, we're about 318 here this morning, maybe a little more. What if he gave us 318 so in love with Jesus, we would go out on rescue missions in our neighborhoods and even to the nations. Well, here, here he, he comes home proudly atop his mount, wearing the stains of his victory as he leads his warriors and all the captives and plunder from the fallen cities. I trust uh, there's a sense of euphoria that his heart soars. 
I love what Churchill said when he recalled when the British people learned of their victory in World War II. He said, I heard the cheers of the brave people who had borne so much and given all, who had never lost faith in their country or its destiny. According to Churchill, one simple cheer, eight words, are now locked in the memory of history. It was heard that Monday night and throughout the following day as crowds gathered throughout England. It was repeated by tearful, proud, exultant Britons who rejoiced that they had prevailed. Someone in the throng would shout, who won the war? The rest would roar back, we won the war. And on and on they would go that day. And I, I trust there's something of a similar euphoria rising in the hearts of these triumphant men and these freed captives. As, as Abrams, now his name will be known by all, from the Euphrates to the Nile, returns this conquering hero, and there he meets a great man. In fact, he comes to the king's valley, and he's met by two, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. You note verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Ketolomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. And it's here, meeting these two kings, that Abram faces a second test. And this is the test of success, right? the, <laughs> the test of popularity. See, many, many have passed the test of courage, but they fail the, the test of success. Now, how do you respond when you're suddenly popular and you're suddenly powerful? One commentator writes, so often those who have been stellar in adversity are derailed by success. Their behavior changes in order to take advantage of their fame. Faith in God reverts to faith in self, and they begin to believe the good press. And so weakened, they succumb to the temptations they had easily resisted before. How would Abram fare? Well, first comes the king of Sodom. But then we're, we're, we'll return to him. Then the focus shifts us to the king of Salem, this great man named Melchizedek. He is one of the most mysterious, in fact, probably is the most mysterious man in all the Bible. That he comes out of nowhere, and we never see him again other than this one passage. Uh, he, he's a Canaanite who happens to be a follower of God. Now, up until now, we have no indication that anyone in Canaan worships God. And he's also a priest, to make matters more interesting. There's no mention of the priesthood at this point in Scripture. In fact, the priesthood would not be instituted by God officially for about 400, 500 years from then. And you think, okay, well, if this man's a king and a priest, why did God choose Abraham and not Melchizedek? Right? Who is this guy? Well, Martin Luther thought he was none other than Shem, the son of Noah. Origen, the church father, thought he was an angel. Ambrose and others have said that he is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate form. I, I, I don't know who he is, but I tend to agree with Calvin, who said that he is simply a man alone in that land who was upright, a sincere cultivator, and a guardian of religion. I like how William Law puts it with his um, tendency towards his uh, flourish. He says, the first war which darkens history's page is ended. Abraham is moving homewards, crowned with success, laden with spoil. Suddenly, a scene breaks on us. A personage who is all wonder stands on the stage of Scripture. He is high in earthly dignity, for he is Salem's king. He is high in holy function, for he is the priest of the Most High God. Do we ask his lineage? 
It is shrouded in a veil. Do we seek the morning of his days? His sun never rises. Do we seek the evening of his life? His sun never sets. He only appears in full-blown stature and in meridian blaze beholds Melchizedek. And here he comes. In his hands, he brings what? Bread and wine. It is time to celebrate this great victory. Now, when I think of bread and wine, perhaps for you as well, it's hard for me not to think of the bread and and the the wine, if you will, that we take once a month here, a picture of the Lord's Supper. And here he comes, and he's hosting this feast. And I imagine Melchizedek and Abram must have spent hours together over dinner. You know, these two men of God, sharing what they've learned of God, thinking about the plan of God, um, and, and, and talking about these things. And after supper, Melchizedek is so moved by his time together that he stands and blesses Abram, as you see in verse 19. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. He says, Abram, I know why you defeated your enemy. And it's not your might and your men. It's not not simply your strategy or your strength. It's because God gave you the victory. God has done this for you. I mean, they're, they're, you see what's going on. This is a little church service they're having, right? In fact, Luther imagined Melchizedek must have preached a whole sermon, which just sounds like something a preacher would imagine. Right? Right? And the response, what happens? Well, look, finish verse 20. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. He pays a tithe or a tenth to Melchizedek. In doing so, he recognizes that it all belongs to God. He trusts God to provide. He said, why does he give it to Melchizedek? Well, he's a priest. And later on, when the priesthood is established, God's people will bring a tithe. And now under the new covenant, God's appointed instrument is the church. And it's through the church the gospels preach. And through the church, Christians are discipled and the poor are served and missionaries are sent. And so we, with with zero apologies, receive tithes and offerings as a church. Because God's people have always been giving tithes and offerings. And some of you are extremely generous. And uh, we praise God for what, for what you have done. I've been here six years, and all six years we have exceeded our budget. We've, we've, you've given more money than we need to run this church. Of course, all that we save, just, uh, uh, that is excess, goes towards missions. We don't save any of it. We just send it off into missionary council. And I praise God for the generosity of this church. And yet in a church this size, I, I, I know, though I don't know anyone individually, and your giving tendencies, but I, I'm pretty safe to assume some of you don't give. Some of you don't give anything. And you don't give because you're insecure. You don't give because you don't, you don't trust God to provide for your needs. And there's a great deal of insecurity around finances and a great deal of stress around finances. And even when I talk about something like this, and I'll be over, I've done about 30 seconds, hold on. Um, you think, you know, it just kind of gets you all worked up. You say, well, if I were to give, how am I going to pay my bills? How am I, how am I going to, how, how's this going to work? And you're constantly stressed about money. In God's grace, even before I became a Christian, he led me to tithe. That's a long story. I can share it with you later. And may I say now, for 20 plus years, as a tither, God has never failed to meet our needs. Right? And uh, I, I say that as a man here living in Loudoun County with a family of 10 on a single income. Okay? God has met my needs every single time. And I would encourage you to pray. Maybe talk to your spouse are we not trusting God in our finances? I'm not saying this because we, we as I already established, we need your money, right? We, we, send, we just send it off. We don't save it. It doesn't go to me. I don't work on commission or anything like that, okay? okay? Uh, right? 
but I, I, I want you to walk in faith. Abraham says, I, I'm going to give you a tenth. I mean, it all started, this first tithe with Abram. He pays that tithe to Melchizedek. And now, uh, by the way, does Melchizedek remind you of anything? I see the time is running out, so we, we can't, I had a whole one, I mean, this is, it's really cool, but we can't do it, I'm afraid. Um, but uh, listen, what, I mean, he's a king, he's a priest, he's bringing out the Lord's Supper, he's offering blessings, he's receiving tithes. Does that remind you of anyone? It points us to the Lord Jesus, right? In fact, when David, who would be king of what? King of Jerusalem, right? Jeru Salem, same town, right? Salem means peace. Jeru, or Yah, means Yahweh, God's peace. They just changed the name from peace to God's peace, Jerusalem. He's a successor of Melchizedek. He writes in Psalm 110, and, he, and, and Jesus quotes Psalm 110, and he said David was being carried along by the Spirit and spoke of the Messiah, and he writes, he begins verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the Lord, God, said to my Lord, well, who's David's Lord? Well, it's the Messiah. It's the Messiah. And then he goes on to explain that he's going to conquer. And then in verse 4, David says, you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That the Messiah coming is not just a king, but he's a priest as well. He rules and he makes sacrifice as he stands in between us, God, us and God. Now, in Israel, you can't ha- a king can't be a priest. Kings from Judah, priests from Levi. They don't, it's like separation of powers, right? You've got checks and balances in Israel, and each is given their own authority. The one time a king tried to be a priest was a man named Uzziah, went into the temple to make a sacrifice. He says, I like being a king. I also like to be a priest. God struck him with leprosy for the rest of his life. He says, no, no, you're either king or a priest. You can't be both until one man named Jesus, who leads us, rules us, guides us, and intercedes for us, and stands between us and a holy God. He is the king of righteousness, which is what Melchizedek means. He is the king of peace, which is what Salem means. And as Psalm, uh, Psalm 85 says, in God, righteousness and peace kiss. In Christ, the righteous standard of God and the peace with God come together and he continues to kiss his bride with both righteousness and peace. Well, all the while, Bera, the king of Sodom, he's listening to all this. He learn anything? Look in verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Okay? So he's a little bit different. King of Salem comes. His first words are what? Bless you. I just want to bless you. King of Sodom shows up. His first words are, give me. Right? Give Give me, he, right? His heart is set on wealth. He's thinking, how can I get some of this back? Now, who, who lost the battle? Anybody remember? It was a lot of names, but Sodom, they win the battle, lose the battle. They lost the battle, right? Okay? Uh, the, the city was sacked, lost all his people. Maybe king of, the king of Sodom, his name's Bera. Maybe he was taken captive at all. If, if you're the mayor of a town who's just been destroyed, and along comes your neighbor, and he, he, he defeats your enemies, and he frees all your people, and you meet the guy... What's the first thing you're going to say to him? Right? Yeah, it might be thank you. Hey, I appreciate it. Because yesterday was a really bad day, right? I lost my wall. I got my hand cut off. And, uh, you know, I just thank you. Thank you. And well, I don't know what we do without you. But no. <laughs> he shows up and he says, hey, give me. Give me with no, no thought of God, no thanks to Abram, no humility, 
no, hey, man, we don't have anything. Can you help us out at all? He just says, give me. Give me my people. You, you can keep the stuff. As if he's entitled to any of it. To the victor go the spoils. It's all Abram's right now. It's all his, right? And he's just trying to get some back. Now, Abram, notice his response, verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Notice he's quoting Melchizedek there. That I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So Abram has this pile of wealth, his gold, jewelry, furniture, right, BMWs, whatever it is. He's got it all. He's got all these servants. He's got all, he's got all this wealth. And he happens to be the most powerful man around now. He's the only guy left standing with his army. And, and he says to this man, I don't want any of it. You take it all. Why? Well, he tells us. He says, I don't, I don't want anyone thinking you have prospered me. I don't want anyone thinking you've made me rich. In other words, Abram says, I know God's going to bless me. God told me he's going to bless me. God's going to take care of me. God's going to give me what I need. I've learned to walk in faith. It took me a little while, but I'm there yet. And, and therefore, I, I don't want you, King of Sodom, taking any credit from God. When God does bless me, I don't want you walking around telling the neighbors, yeah, Abram may be well off. Abram's doing well, but it's because of me. You see, what's more important to Abram is not his comfort, not his wealth, but it is the honor and the glory of his God. And he says to the king, I won't let you take any of it. And notice how absolute he is. It's not like, okay, well, I'll give you half. Let me keep half. Or you could take it all, but if I fall in hard times, you know, maybe you could pay me back a little bit. He says, I don't even want a shoelace. I don't even want a thread from you. And, and I just, I'm imagining, he's got 318 soldiers, and they're thinking, what? <laughs> what, you're giving it all away? Right? What, what are you doing? Isn't this ours now? Isn't this we went to battle? He doesn't care what they think. He doesn't care what his own troops think. Because he fears, fears God. He doesn't fear man. You say, how does Abram get to this point? Well, look, he made a vow. You see that in verse 22? I lifted my hand to the Lord. I made a vow. I trust he did this before battle. Right? I think that's wise. Making vows to God, making promises to God uh, before temptation comes, I think is wise. If you're single, right, you make a vow for purity before you find someone you're attracted to. If you're married, maybe you don't have children yet, you make a vow. We're going to, we as a family, we're going to tithe before the children start coming. Because by the way, they, they like to eat and things like that. And so they're expensive. And so you, you make a vow first. So I made a vow, right? I made a vow that when hard decisions come to me, I've already made them. And, and not just he made a vow, but he drew close to God in worship. Notice Melchizedek blesses him. He brings his offering. He finds joy in the Lord. And, and now, as he's been, been drawn close to God, now, now all this doesn't even have a pull upon him. My friends, when we're far from God, we're mu- we, are, we are much weaker when we face temptation. When we're filled with the, with the love of God, right, and, and God comes at the end of battle and feeds us bread and wine, and we're over, we become overflowing. We don't need anything more. I love what John Knox, who was the Scottish reformer, um, who, who's, people asked him, aren't you afraid of the Queen of Scotland because she's trying to kill you? And Knox says, how can I fear a mere earthly monarch when I have just spent four hours with God? Right? Right? I, I, that doesn't tempt me at all. The one who lives close to God can't be intimidated by an earthly king. Well, it ends there in, at the end of verse 24, doesn't it? 
Uh, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and their share of men who went with me. Let Anner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. I find this very interesting. Those three men are, are Abram's allies. They're all non-believers. They're pagans. And, and they're blessed because they're, they're staying close to Abram. And Abram says, I'm not going to take anything, but get this. These men will. In other words, what he's saying, I'm not going to impose my religious convictions on unbelievers. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, that's how we want to treat you. We're not interested in you sharing our convictions. We're interested in you and meeting your creator. That's who we want you to meet. You don't, you don't need to do what we do. We just want you to meet God and, and get to know his son, Jesus Christ. And Abram doesn't say, I'm the boss I'm in charge. This is what we all do. You work for me. We all read our Bible in the morning. We all do this. We all do that. He doesn't impose his faith on them, but he doesn't hide his faith from them. And I can almost imagine before battle, he draws them together and he says, hey guys, we need to pray before we go to battle. And he lifts his hand to heaven and he says, God, we're going, we're going to battle and we're not, we're not going for money and we're not going for glory. We're going to free the captives. And so please help us, please give us the victory, and when you do, I'm going to praise you, and I'm going to give away everything that I get. Amen. And these non-believers, they're listening to this, and they're thinking, man, this guy is weird. (laughs) But he sure loves God. He sure seems to care for people. That's the way we ought to live among our coworkers and the students and our neighbors and our families. We don't expect them to keep our convictions, but do not stop living your faith in front of them. That you pray that they may meet God through you. They may, too, come to know him and to worship him. I just think this is an amazing story. I think it tells us so much about Jesus. I, I think it tells about us. We're Lot, we're captive in sin, headed for death, and we're desperate for an Abram to come rescue us. We're desperate for a Melchizedek a priest who could take away our sins, a king who could rule us in righteousness. We have one. His name is Jesus. He died for our sins, didn't he, believers? Rose from the dead, and we have been freed by him. I pray if you're here and you don't know Christ, you would recognize that he would accept you simply by trusting in him, that you would yield your life to him in faith, and that you would say, Jesus, I'm sorry that I have sinned against you, I'm sorry, I've gone my own way. Will you please forgive me? I yield myself. I trust you. You are my king and my God. The Bible says if you sincerely commit yourself to the Lord, he will forgive you of all your sins, shadow you with grace, cover you with mercy, and receive you into his kingdom if you would commit yourself to him. Father, we're thankful for your word and the encouragement that it is to us. We're thankful... Father, that we have been freed. We're thankful, Father, that we have a priest who stands between us and you that covers us with grace, blood-bought grace. Father, help our spirits to soar in light of these truths that we might leave this place not with heavy with the law sitting upon us, but emboldened that we too might seek to free the captives as we have been freed. We too might seek to intercede for the lost as you have done for us. And so help us. Even as we think about these things, fall more in love with Jesus, that we may increasingly be like him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.